Welcome listeners to a new episode of the Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. This is Stefan Tilkov. My guest today is Daniel Westheide. Daniel is a colleague of mine at InnoQ. He works as a senior consultant and he's also well known in the Scala community because he's a frequent conference speaker and also the author of the blog and the book, The Neophyte's Guide to Scala. Welcome, Daniel. Hello, Stefan. Do you actually prefer to be called Daniel when you speak English or do you prefer Daniel as we would say in German? Well, I'm used to be called Daniel when I'm speaking English, so that's fine. So, so let's stick to Daniel. Yeah. Um, Daniel, today we're going to talk about advanced Scala topics. We had a podcast about uh, Scala basics recently, um, so we thought that this time we might add to that and um, talk to some, talk about some of the more advanced features. Um, and that's very interesting to me because I very much am a Scala newbie. I've only dabbled a bit in the language, so you can be sure that I will ask lots of dumb questions. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And, <laughs> okay. and I must say that the first Scala podcast uh, recently, there were actually also some advanced topics already. So let's see. Very um, true. Um, I, I remember they mentioned the mo monad word. <laughs> They, they mentioned the M word. Yeah. I think we're not going to mention the no, M word. No, we're today, actually not we? doing that at all. So it's, it's, that's kind of weird. It's what you'd <laughs> expect in an advanced podcast. Anyway, let's get started. So we, we, we decided to talk about a few of the, of the features that people find appealing mm -hmm. um, in Scala and maybe talk about some of their uh, downsides or the challenges with them. Yeah. So let's start with what I consider to be one of the nicest selling points for, for Scala not knowing what I'm talking about as usual. Um, case classes, are they the killer feature for Java converts? Well, yeah, for Java, people that are coming to Scala, I think it's often one of the nicest things they immediately recognize as uh, something that adds value to what they are familiar can you, can from you, Scala. Can you, can you briefly explain what case classes are? Yeah, so um, case classes are classes where you only specify the fields that these classes have and then a lot of code is generated for you. So actually only specify the constructor and then they are immediately turned into immutable public fields by the compiler and it also generates an equals and a hash code method and a Scala companion object with a factory method called apply which makes it nicer to instantiate values of this case class. And it also generates a copy method. So this is something that you also need to handcraft in Java as a copy constructor usually. So this copy method has named and default arguments. So when you have one value of a case class, you can immediately create a new value from it, just changing a single field, for example. And mm -hmm. another thing, of course, is that they can be destructured in a pattern matching expression. Where pattern matching, of course, is something not at all available in Java. But all the other things um, are typical boilerplate code uh, things that Java developers have mm -hmm. to write a lot. So, so that actually sounds pretty great. Is there anything, is there any problem with it? Well... Um, there are some problems. Uh, maybe let's first speak about why they exist and wh also why they are useful. So in mm -hmm. 
In functional programming, we like to separate data from behavior. So data types are typically transparent, so their structure really becomes a public API. I mean, you see that, because I said, you can destructure case classes in a pattern matching expression, so you really see their structure and their internals. Um, and that's great for defining algebraic data types. There are some in the standard library, like option, which only has two possible subtypes, sum and none, or similar types like either, but even list is an algebraic data types, a type, a linked list, because it um, only has a the nil value or the cons value. Lisp programmers might be familiar with that, of course. And for that, case classes are really nice. Um, so if you're coming from object-oriented programming, um, you usually tend to use opaque data types instead, where the internals are encapsulated. And of course, there are good reasons for both. Um, but this um, opaqueness, um, I think it's really a good choice if you want data types that enforce their invariance. And if you want to do that um, with case classes, you suddenly have to write a lot more code um, and it's also quite easy to get this wrong. So, mm. so sorry for interrupting you, mm. but didn't you say that case classes always were immutable? Um, yeah, the what, fields what of, we, yeah. Okay, the fields are immutable. So uh, By okay. default, you can make them okay. mutable. Uh, but that's an explicit choice and actually not recommended. Yeah, I was kind of kind of wondering because you mentioned invariance and actually in, with an immutable object, I don't see anything that could vary. Maybe well, the invariance you usually have to assert them at construction time, right? Okay. So that's also something you would do in a Java class. Um, maybe you have some class called area where there's a width and a height. And you want to assert that they are not negative or greater than mm -hmm. zero, something like that. So this would be an assertion in the constructor in, a, in the Java world. Mm -hmm. And it could be the same thing in a case class. In the case class, you right. could do the same thing. So you could just throw an exception in the constructor if um, such an invariant is violated. Um, but in functional programming, we don't like to throw exceptions, of course because we want to maintain referential transparency. So functional error handling looks a bit different. So we capture potential errors in the return type of a function. For can example... You briefly, can yeah? you briefly explain those, those two technical uh, computer science terms you used? The first one was uh, algebraic data types. The second mm. one was ref referential transparency. Yeah, so algebraic data types... Um, There are actually two, two possible um, types of, of algebraic data types. Um, one is a sum type, another is a product type. So basically you can think of a sum type like an enumeration of possible types. So as I said with the option type, it can either be a, a sum with some value in it or a none representing no value. So this is just a fancy term for that. And the product type, um, any case class is a product type um, because it's the algebra is defined by the 
um, combination of the fields of the case class. So mm -hmm. this is an algebraic data type. Um, and referential transparency is something we always aim for in functional programming, at least when we want to do purely functional programming where there are no uh, side effects. So the idea is that you can um, always uh, replace an expression with a result of that expression without making a difference. So this is like mathematical equations, right? Mm -hmm. But if you throw an exception and catch it, it actually makes a difference um, whether, when you replace um, an expression with its result. Mm -hmm. So then this is violated. So we try to avoid that by not throwing exceptions at all. Of course, that's not easy if you actually integrate with a Java ecosystem where exceptions are thrown all over the place. Um, but um, there are techniques for um, capturing those early uh, in the integration layer. And then you would turn those into um, certain types that capture the possibility of an error. So the easiest would be an option. It would just say there is a value or there is no value. Or with an either, you can have either an error or the actual return type. So this is a disjunction. And mm -hmm. in Scala and other typed function language, we use types like these to, to capture errors. But, um, of course, you can't do that with a constructor, right? Constructor isn't a function. So what you would need to do is to turn the constructor into a private constructor and write your own factory method on the companion object that returns such a functional error type. And then you don't have to throw exceptions anymore. Why is the constructor another function? I guess that's a JVM technicality. I mean, in Java, the constructor is also not a function, right? It's something special. Okay, so I was thinking about whether there is any, you know, in an abstract way, but it, mm. because it's a function that returns an object based on the input parameters, mm. but what you're referring to was the technical implementation where a constructor is a different thing yeah. than the VM. Okay. I, I would see. certainly like it if a constructor was already just another function, but uh, yeah, that's, that's not the case on the JVM, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's another problem, of course, um, because um, this generated copy method, it allows us to create a new value of our data type by changing some field. So even if we have a private constructor and a nice factory method, it would still be possible um, to first create a, a legal value of our type and then change it or create a new value from it that is illegal by just setting a field to something it shouldn't be. And there are some tricks to avoid that, but it's quite complicated and then you have to write a lot of code. And a nice alternative to that is to not use a case class at all for such an opaque data type. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, you can just handcraft everything, but there's also a nice annotation from the Scala Meta project, uh, which is called addData. And with that, you can specify things it should generate for you. So it can actually generate all the things that a case class would generate for you, but you can also tell it to not generate certain things. Uh, 
so that it leaves out the copy method, for example, or it doesn't create an apply method, or it's not possible to destructure it in pattern matching, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that sounds like that data annotation would probably use um, Scala's built-in macro facilities to do that? Is that the right term even in Scala? A Scala Meta itself is a, is a macro library. So it allows you to write macros, annotation macros. So that's how it's implemented. There's also macros in the Scala standard library, but um, they are a bit different and uh, deprecated by now, as far as I know. So that was okay. the first attempt at creating a macro system for Scala. And there have been various attempts since then. Um, and Scala Meta is one of them. I see. So do you see any chance that something like this might become the standard way of, of doing things? I or think do you have to make a choice of the right library to use? Um, I think there are now um, attempts to create a new standard Scala macro system, which is not exactly Scala Meta, but the, all the experience from that, I think it will be influencing that. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Currently, there's, of course, still a wide uh, range of libraries that are using that old macro system. And I guess it won't completely go away so soon. But at some point, everything will have to migrate to the new way of doing macros. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to, to maybe sum up the, uh, the case class discussion... Um, I gather they're only supposed to be used in very simple cases. And as soon as you notice that you're fighting against what's been generated, it's better to switch to a different method. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, so they're really nice if you want to define your own algebraic data types, which sometimes makes a lot of sense. But if you have a use case where you want some opaqueness, where you need to enforce some invariance in your data type, then they are probably not a good choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are some blog articles discussing this, um, which we can link to in the show notes, I guess. Perfect. Okay. On to the next topic then. Mm -hmm. I keep hearing about those fancy type classes. Um, and somehow implicits seem to be associated mm -hmm. with that. So you need to explain yeah. to, to me what that actually is. Yeah. So those are things that are widely used in the Scala community or in the Scala ecosystem, but... Um, It's also something that newcomers to the language are quite scared about. Um, and the short answer to what it is, um, they are an alternative to um, polymorphism by subtyping. And they originally come from the Haskell language. But um, while they are a first-class language construct in Haskell, that's not the case in Scala. So they're more like a pattern And you have to use some other language features to implement that pattern. Okay. So there are so, so, excuse me. So maybe mm -hmm. let's talk first about subtype polymorphism. What, what's that? Um, so let's say that you um, you have a method called sort, which allows you to sort a list of integers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty easy to implement, but at some point maybe you think it's not generic enough you want to be able to sort any list of of a type that is kind of sortable or orderable and if you want to do that you would introduce a type param parameter to that method 
and it will no longer get a list of integers, but a list of this type parameter, let's call it A. So that's called parametric polymorphism. But now we don't know anything about A, because it's just could be anything, right? So we really mm -hmm. cannot implement sort anymore. So what we need to do is to add a constraint to our type parameter. And if we use subtype polymorphism, which is what you're usually doing in the uh, Java world or object-oriented programming in general, then you would say my type parameter R has to be a subtype of comparable in Java, for example. Mm -hmm. And in Scala, you could also do that. There's a trait called ordered, which any class can extend, um, which even extends Java's comparable. So this is how you could do it. That's because then my sort method would just my sort method would just invoke methods of the comparable type or mm -hmm. uh, sortable yeah. or whatever the name yeah. is, and, mm -hmm. and so my my code would compile because the type checker would would validate that these methods are actually available on the type that I'm yeah I'm exactly mm -hmm. okay and of course this works but um, now we can only use our sort method with types that we can control so that we can make them. Uh, inherit from comparable or, or ordered or whatever but we can't use it with types we don't control some external libraries for example and uh, with type classes um, we have something called ad hoc polymorphism um, which means that we actually do have the chance to um, make our method polymorphic for types we do not control and We'll get to how that works. So we still need to put a constraint on our type parameter A in our sort method. But this time the constraint would be that there must be some evidence to the compiler that there is an instance of the ordering type class for any concrete type A that we uh, want to use here. Okay, just wait a minute. So what you're saying is I don't need to make that class implement. What was the what was the example? Yeah, we don't need to implement or ordered or extend it. Ordered, yeah. yes. So we don't we because maybe it's maybe it has been written by somebody else and I can't make them implement mm -hmm. my library. Or maybe it would introduce a cyclic dependency that I don't want mm -hmm. to accept. So what I'm doing instead is I'm I'm telling the compiler or I'm 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 asserting that there is something that can convert that thing. Is that what you're saying, or what's the what is the actual assertion? What's the actual uh, the actual statement that I'm making? Well, in in type class terms, on a conceptual level, you would say that there's evidence that there's an instance of that type class for your concrete type. But what that means, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. What that means in Scala, um, I think we'll probably get to that in a few minutes. Okay, so let, let me ask on the conceptual yeah. level first, just to get the terminology straight, because yeah. I keep mixing it up and only half understanding what type mm. classes are. So an instance of a type class for that type, was that the mm. terminology you used? Yes. So, so I would have an instance of ordered for int, and I would have an exactly. instance of ordered for string. Yes. So a type class instance is something that exists once for each type that I want to apply to or mm. define it for yeah. or yeah so uh, in haskell it can only exist 
uh, as a single implementation for for each type. Mm -hmm. uh, in Scala, it is actually possible to have different implementations, so different instances mm -hmm. of that type class for a specific type. Um, that's the difference um, that um, is due to the way that type classes as a pattern are implemented in Scala. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how is that similar or different from, from other languages? Like, for example, Clojure has protocols. Is that the same thing? Yeah, um, Clojure and also Elixir both have this thing called protocols, right? So actually, it's quite similar. Uh, both solve this so-called expression problem that we can make arbitrary types conform to some interface or provide some behavior or capability like ordering without having to recompile those sources for that type or for our interface. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with Clojure or Alexia Pro protocols. Probably not. I don't mm -hmm. think we had a Clojure episode mm -hmm. yet, but I think we should do one. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so anyway, um, that means that I for for each type that I want to instantiate that type class for mm -hmm. is that the way to say it? Yeah. For each type that I want to do that for, I have to write some code that sort of mediates between the existing uh, type and the interface, the interface that I want to provide. Correct? Yeah, that's true. So, so how do how do I do that? How do I implement the type class? Yeah, well. Um To answer that, it's probably best first to understand how a type class itself is defined. Mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, actually quite simple. Uh, so in Scala, it's oh, wait, just... Uh, sorry, so what you're saying is uh, I'm not implementing it yet for a specific type. I'm just defining it first in an abstract way? No, what I'm so? saying is that someone has to say that there is an ordering type class, for example independent of the particular type that I'm going to instantiate yeah. it for. So ordering okay. is Understood. already in the standard library, but mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to see what that actually looks like in order to know how to implement it for your mm -hmm. own type. And of course, you could also define your own type classes at some sure. point, but that's a bit um, more advanced. Um, so a type class like ordering is just a trade with a type parameter A, And it would have one or more methods. And these methods, they usually take one or more arguments of this type A. Or they return something of that type A. It really depends on the type class. But in case of ordering of A, you would have a method called compare, which takes mm -hmm. two values of A and returns an integer. So this is exactly uh, like Java's comparator interface. And it actually even extends Java's comparator interface, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So comparator in Java also allows you to implement comparison functionality for types you don't control. But um, the difference, of course, is that you you have to pass that comparator mm -hmm. to your function as an explicit argument. So I have to argument. explicitly instantiate mm -hmm. it in order yeah. to do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the shape of a type class in general is usually quite similar to this comparator interface in Java. So if you are familiar with that, you should have a, a good idea of what type classes in uh, Scala look like. Mm -hmm. So how, how they are defined. And now the okay. question you had is actually, how do I define instances mm -hmm. of my type class? 
Um, so what you would usually do is you implement it by um, implementing the ordering trade, just as you would implement a comparator in Java. But then usually what people do is do that as an anonymous class and assign this to a value identifier. So a val of type ordering of int, for example. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about this val is it has to have the implicit keyword, which um, mm -hmm. we haven't really talked about yet, uh, just in the beginning when we mentioned type classes. But this implicit keyword um, is important because methods um, that want to be constrained by its type class, um, like our sort method, they make use of this implicit resolution mechanism. Because um, the sort method uh, would actually get a second parameter list. So it will not only get a list of A, as an argument, but it would also have an implicit parameter list in which it expects an ordering of A. Mm -hmm. and of course, you can explicitly pass in your defined ordering of int here, but you don't have to do that. Whereas in Java, you always have to pass in your comparator as a second argument mm -hmm. explicitly. But since our parameter is implicit, and we have defined an implicit value, um, the compiler will try to find a matching implicit value and we will find our implicit ordering of int in this case. So it'll just look for a val in the in the environment, in the in the lexical environment, mm -hmm. and, and use that. Yeah, so it can okay. be defined locally, it can be defined in some trait we extend, or it can be in an import. So there are different ways of getting it into our scope, but uh, um, at the end of the day, it will hopefully find an instance. And if it doesn't, it will not even compile, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it reminds me a bit of, of, in, of dependency injection or something like the inject annotation. Very, very mm. There are actually some people who use implicit resolution also to inject dependencies in Scala. So that's also possible. Um, mm -hmm. It's a different way of using implicits than for type classes, but it's also possible. Yeah. Okay, so it, uh, probably type classes are a more specific thing, right? Yeah, they are a specific way of using implicits. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. But another way okay. of using implicits would also be for dependency injection. So what happen? Well, what will happen then is the uh, the type will be automatically well converted or wrapped or decorated in that type class or handled by that type class instance when I call methods like that. Is that how it works? Okay, well, no, let me, I don't think I've got it yet. So let's say I pass in something called, uh, something of type A, mm -hmm. but this A type doesn't have my compare method or whatever it is that I need to do the sorting. Mm -hmm. um, so um, can I still do a, no, oh, can I still do a dot compare? No, oh, I think I get it now. I'm just yeah, calling it a, a free function. I wouldn't call dot compare. I would call compare and then I would pass yeah, actually in the two A's. Actually, you wouldn't call compare on, on the value of A. Yeah, sure. But, Makes sense. but you have this implicit type class parameter, mm -hmm. which can have any name. Let's call it 
ordering in our case. And I would do ordering. So you would call ordering dot compare and oh, okay. pass in now the I two values. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. I got it. Okay, makes sense. So, that, so it's that actually does, it looks it really sound as fancy as I expected it to be. Actually, yeah, it's not fancy. I mean, if you know <laughs> comparator from Java, basically mm -hmm. you have almost uh, understood type classes okay. in Scala. Okay. Yeah. So, so okay. So you've 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 managed to get this into my thick head, which is a, which is a <laughs> success. The first one. Now we actually want to talk about more advanced stuff, not educate me about the basics. So, what are some of the problems of, of type classes or implicits? What what problems do people have with them? Mm, yeah, I think um, because they are not first class constructs, um, they are actually quite heavy on the syntax. So method signatures with type class constraints can be a bit difficult to read, especially if the constraint is actually on multiple type classes, which could also be the case. Um, so I guess especially for newcomers to Scala, that can be a bit scary. Uh, another thing is that this resolution mechanism for implicit parameters um, is often not well understood by people who are new to Scala. So you really have to dig deep into how this works in order to understand why, for example, a certain implicit value was chosen over another. Because mm -hmm. as I said, unlike in Haskell, you can define multiple ordering of ints for example, as implicit values. And which one is chosen um, is totally dependent on this resolution mechanism, which looks in a specific order. Um, for example, local implicit values are always um, chosen over imported mm -hmm. ones and they are chosen over mixed-in ones and stuff like that. So if you don't know uh, this resolution mechanism, you might be surprised at, at the behavior. And another thing is that some libraries, in my opinion, they, they misuse this type class feature a bit because they, so they define their own type classes and then they provide some default instances of these type classes for certain standard types. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that default behavior is a bit unexpected. And of course you get it automatically uh, sometimes sometimes it's difficult to opt out of these default instances if they are not well designed um, and uh, that can also be frustrating for people mm -hmm. okay have we actually talked about how to how to define the constraint I'm not sure we have how, well, how, do, I, how do I define my sort method to say that mm -hmm. it expects lists yeah, well, of A, I, but also expects that implicit mm -hmm. type I briefly instance. mentioned that you have this implicit parameter list mm -hmm. in which you would have your ordering of A as an implicit it, parameter. Yeah, but it can so be multiple. Can, can it be... Mm. Sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, what it actually always boils down to. You can define it like that. But there's also a shorthand notation um, for type class constraints, which is called context bounds. So instead of ha having this implicit parameter list, which is quite verbose, you could just uh, have your type parameter and say, so it's called A, so we can say our type parameter A colon ordering, which means there's a context bound for A called ordering. But that is just syntactic sugar. 
and mm -hmm. it will always compile to this implicit parameter list. Okay. But it's just a bit shorter to read. Um, so it's actually quite popular to use these context bounds. Okay, fair enough. Good. So you're not advocating to not use a type classes, you're just saying be careful and don't misuse them. Yes, Correct. they are really a okay. really powerful feature, a nice feature. I'm, I'm using them a lot. But um, yeah, you if you define some default instances, make sure people can opt out of them. Mm -hmm. that's, that's definitely an important point. And understand okay. the resolution mechanism if you are new to Scala because the whole Scala ecosystem is using type classes a lot. So you will have a hard time... Um, completely avoiding them mm -hmm. okay fair enough okay um on to the next topic um mm -hmm. type level programming now that sounds scary what yeah, is, it is type level programming <laughs> yeah so scala is of course a functional language but also an object-oriented language but you can also use it for logic programming because you could say that Uh, there's actually a prolog in the Scala compiler. Um, and so I, if we... I, I expected if you want, this to be scary. I'm not sure yeah. I expected it to be this scary, but that's, yeah. it's okay. Go ahead. So if you want to do logic programming, you're doing it in the compiler, which means it's type-level programming. Um, I guess we need to explain a little bit about prolog to understand this. Mm -hmm. So in prolog or logic programming in general, um, we have facts, And we have rules. Um, and then this, you have some induction. So you can derive new facts from existing facts and rules. So it's a very declarative way of programming. Uh, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, uh, probably if, if people have never heard of Prolog, it's probably a bit scary. But... Um, I don't think we can we can squeeze in a complete prolog tutorial no. right now. So rule-based, fact-based yeah. programming, that should yeah. probably be enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. how does that translate to the type to the compiler and the and Scala's type system? Mm. Yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail on this because it's quite difficult. Um, but um, in general, you could say that facts from logic programming can be represented by implicit values. Because an implicit value is an evidence to the compiler that something exists or something is true. Okay. Like the ordering so that of would be in, in Okay, so in the, in, the, in, the, in the prolog examples that I know, that would be something like, uh, um, I don't know, Paul is Laura's father, or Paul is the father of Laura, or something like that. Is that something mm. that you would put into a value by using yeah. the mechanism I guess, that we just talked about? Yeah, of course you first need to define some, some types. So maybe um, the parent or the father relationship. Maybe you, yeah, like this relationship okay. will probably have to be a type with some type parameters. Mm -hmm. Maybe relationship with two parameters or, mm -hmm. or father relationship. Yeah. Okay. And so you could define a fact like that. I and see. actually the, the actual value of will never be used, of course, because we're only doing this at compile time. So mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter what the implementation would be, right? Okay. Um, and there probably uh, doesn't even have to be an implementation in this case. Um, yeah, anyway, that's facts. And now 
rules are represented by something I haven't mentioned yet when we talked about implicits and type classes. Um, because I said you only can define implicit values in order to provide evidence to a method that has a type class constraint. But you can also define implicit methods, which are defined by the def keyword. And with those, you can basically represent rules in logical programming. So wait, wait, wait. W what's an implicit def? I think you lost me there. Yeah, well, um, so an implicit def would be evidence to the compiler that there is an instance of a type class, let's say foo, for a given type A. Um, um, like the comparator this, for our, or the ordering for our integers that yeah, we talked about before. Mm -hmm. But this evidence um, depends on some other implicit value. So you would have an method defined with the implicit keyword and it also has an implicit parameter list in which it expects evidence for something else and by that you can say um, well I don't have a good example for the um, ordering case now but in general you can say I can provide evidence for um, something that depends Uh, on some other implicit that has to be there. You need to give me an example, otherwise I'll never yeah. understand this. Okay. Well, what's a good example outside of ordering? Maybe we can actually try to explain this with our father okay. relationship thing. So we have an implicit value. Um, so let's say we want to have evidence of a grandfather relationship. We could derive that from two facts, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have can to have two implicit values that which define father relationships. Let's call it parent relationships to make it Yeah, easier. let's do parent. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have grandparent, uh, which could would be an implicit method, an implicit def. So this one would give us evidence of a grandparent relationship given that we already know uh, of these two um, parent relationships. Okay, so I, 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 can't see, I can't see the syntax in my head right now, but let's just assume that you would be able to do that. Um, I think I get the point that if somebody is somebody's parent, then whoever is their mm -hmm. parent is the grandparent of the one they're the parent of. Yeah. Um, because we all know how parent relationships work. Yeah, the syntax is really not easy yeah, to explain whatever. in Just an audio. In a, in a podcast, that's pretty hard <laughs> to do. So maybe yeah. we can put that into the show notes somewhere. But the um, the first question I have is, why would you use that for... What is an example use case for that outside of this logic programming? What's What conceivable use does that have in a general programming Mm. Uh, language yeah of course there are all kinds of fancy things people do with this that are not really practical but a real use case would be um, something like type safe indexing of age lists uh, an age list uh, is a heterogeneous list which means mm. it's a list in which every element can have a different type and those types are known at compile time and mm -hmm. one implementation of this is in the library called shapeless um, and here the uh, the length 
of an ageless is also known at compile time. So type safe indexing would mean you cannot try to access an element that is out of bounds on a specific mm -hmm. age list. And if you do index something that is within the bounds, of course you exactly get uh, the element with the correct type that you would expect because mm -hmm. everything is known at compile time. So for each index, the type would be known. I see. So okay, that that makes sense in a in a in a in a language that focuses on type safety. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So maybe back to the uh, to the prog and rule based programming kind of thing. Then, so I get that if you can define those kinds of relationships within with relationships between your types, you can use the type checker as a logic engine. Is that yeah. the point you were getting at originally? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But um. Of course, um, you don't really have to do Towers of Hanoi in the compiler. It's, an, it's, it's a nice well, exercise. I could, I could also do them using C++ template metaprogramming. <laughs> yeah. Just as great. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting to know. Um, I think it helps with understanding how implicit resolution works. If you uh, think about implicit values and implicit depths as facts and rules, um, mm -hmm. But in practice, you usually wouldn't do real logic programming uh, normally. Okay. Okay. That that makes that actually makes a lot of sense. Okay. So it was you. You were not advocating for actually doing uh, using the Scala type system as a prolog uh, replacement, but rather to understand how it works by making that analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So. While we're talking about types, one of the differences that I note between programming in, say, Java, which is the, the aesthetically type language that I know best, and a language like, for example, Clojure, is that in in Clojure, you're programming mostly with um, with generic existing types. Um, you're using maps and, and vectors and, and lists as opposed to defining your own type for, for everything. Is that something that's at all doable in the Scala world? Is it frowned upon? Is there a use case for doing that? Well, usually people really define their own types for everything. So it would be quite difficult to just work with lists and maps and sets with, mm -hmm. with some keys in there. It's, of course, it's possible, but then there's no real benefit of using Scala at all. Then you could just use closure, right? Because it's much more comfortable and natural to do that in closure. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it means that if you have all these case classes and types, um, it's difficult to write code that processes data in a really generic way, uh, which is really, really easy to do in closure. I guess that's also your experience, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So there are ways around this, of course. Yes, there are always ways around it. <laughs> um, because there is a way of abstracting over case classes. Um, so I already mentioned this shapeless library. And it has the capability of representing case class values in a generic form. Uh, without any boilerplate and also without using run runtime reflection. And to do that, it has a type called generic. And that is based on this ageless type that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and here the idea is that two case classes, um, for example, they both have two fields where the first one is of type string and the second of type int, they would have exactly the same shape if you represent them as an h list. Okay. The so h list would be int string mm -hmm. h nil in both mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. So when you represent a case class value like that, you can do generic programming with it. And there's also something called labeled generic, which also takes into account the field names. So we, you would also be able to extract those together with the values. So you would I guess it's represented as an age list of tuples or something like that, which includes the name of the field and the and the value. And with that, it's possible to write code that is independent of specific case classes. So you don't have to repeat everything uh, oh. for different case classes. So, so is that that obviously that obviously maps the the statically structured or the the well, I'm using, I'm, I'm lacking the right words here. Um, mm. So, if I understood you correctly, the the structure or the the case class, the type that I define um, as its field turned into a list of of, uh, of things of different type. The H list that you mentioned, the mm -hmm. H structure that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe my, my maybe my question is: Does that happen at, at runtime or does it happen at compile time? So the conversion uh, would happen. Uh, at runtime, but um, so at runtime it is actually represented in this other way. It's not as if I'm accessing it as if it were this other thing. It actually mm -hmm. is turned into that other thing. Yeah, but um, the important thing is that you don't have to use reflection because at compile time it already knows how to do that. So you don't have to use reflection mm -hmm. to look at the names of the fields, for example. I see, and their types. I see. Because so I make I a copy, of the, a copy yeah. of the values, of the mm. individual values, and I have to pay the overhead of the list structure mm. that wraps those values, but I don't have to pay for the runtime overhead. Well, um, no, actually, yeah, sure, the list will have some overhead for yeah. accessing its field, at least one extra indirection, but I will not mm. pay for the reflection overhead. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So if you have that, um, you can also automatically turn any case class value into JSON, for example, using this technique without reflection. Most Java libraries for JSON serialization, as far as I know, they're all using reflection. Um, and in Scala, of course, this is a bit frowned upon, so we like to avoid reflection. There's a, so, at sorry, least one... What, what, yeah. happens, what happens if things don't match? If, something, if I send some JSON to you that doesn't match your expectation? Okay, uh, so this would be the other way around, of course. Um, but this is also possible. The first thing was uh, turning the value into JSON. Yeah, sure, that's that's, that's the yeah. easy part, right? Yeah, that's, that's I can understand how that would work, yeah. but it only makes sense if you can do it the other way around too. So, yeah. how, does that I know throw yeah, this, an exception or crash course, taking down the machine? <laughs> yeah, we don't like exceptions. So the way this is implemented is um, so the code is also generated for um, parsing a JSON structure and trying to turn it into a value of a certain type. Mm -hmm. um, and if that is not possible because the structure doesn't match, the field names don't match or whatever, you would usually get a functional error type. For example, oh, the Cersei JSON library, um, which is using shapeless to do all this automatic encoder, decoder derivation, um, it would return an either. 
where you mm -hmm. get a nice error message about what was wrong or you get a successful um, result in the either. Mm -hmm. So that's how it's usually done in the Scala world. Okay. Um, any downsides to that? Yeah, so if you make heavy use of all these shapeless features, um, it can often lead to slow compilation times because they use quite a lot of compiler tricks and a lot of implicits and um, that that can slow down the compiler. It's one of the more difficult things for the compiler to do all this implicit resolution and some of the other things Shapeless is doing there. Mm -hmm. So what, what does that actually mean, slowing down com uh, compilation? Is it like, I don't know, half a second or is it really noticeable like it takes half a minute or something like that? Well, on big projects, it can be really noticeable. So if you have a huge code base um, with lots of implicit and lots of shapeless stuff in there, you will really notice the difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So much so that you might be distracted and do other things <laughs> instead of just waiting for the compiler. That's always a critical uh, point for me. So you mean like three seconds or <laughs> what is the notice? Of, who knows? Everybody has their own. Yeah, yeah own, I mean. Let's check Slack. Yeah, or we, have check this increment, we have this incremental compilation in Scala. So you usually only compile what has actually changed in a in this interactive mode of the uh, Scala build tool. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, depending on how big your project is and how entangled everything is, uh, even one change uh, might lead to multiple seconds of compilation if there are a lot of implicits to check for the compiler. Mm -hmm. Okay. So don't overdo it. <laughs> Okay, so so maybe maybe we can maybe we can talk a bit about um, the effects of all of those things. Um, as you can probably guess, for for me as a as a non-scala person, all of this sounds a little bit scary. I'm, I'm mm. not as scary as I expected, actually. I'm, maybe That's this is not the first hear. time we're doing this, so maybe I'm learning a little bit on the way. Um, but still, I I do understand the value in in most of those things. Um, do you see a a downside due to the complexity of all of this i mean it's a lot to understand a lot to grasp do do scala programmers typically understand those things well um i think it's a long uh, process until you really understand it in depth um so with beginning scala programmers um they usually um don't have such a deep understanding quickly of for example, how type classes and implicits work. So, yeah, there's quite a learning curve. It's, mm -hmm. it's a challenge. But in my opinion, it's it's worth it. But of course, it depends on how long your project is, right? If you start learning Scala at the beginning of a project, um, it might not make sense um, to do that for a short project. But you really have to invest it for it uh uh, in the long term mm -hmm. there okay. are probably other alternatives to um, to Java that are easier um, to get started with like Kotlin it's, um, I think it's easier to be productive with it immediately mm -hmm. 
but then um, it also stops at some point where I think Scala can be even more helpful um, if you like static programming or statically mm -hmm. typed languages. Okay. So what are some what are some resources that you would recommend to people who want to familiarize themselves with Scala beyond the intro level? Uh, good question. Well, I guess I shouldn't mention my own blog. Well, you should definitely mention your own <laughs> book. It's fine. We'll, we'll link it anyway. It's called mm -hmm. The Neophyte's Guide to Scala. Um, anything other than that? Um, I think it's... What I really like is um, there's a a weekly um, thing called This Week in Scala. It's a bit, a little bit like a newsletter, but it's um, it's posted as a blog post, and it always contains uh, links to interesting uh, blog posts or other resources that um, that have come up in that week. So with that, um, you usually have plenty of resources to to dig deeper into Scala. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and if you really want to learn a bit more about um, purely functional programming and also even category theory, there's a nice book called Advanced Scala. I think it's called like that. So it, it teaches those concepts um, with the uh, CATS library. So CATS is a library in the Scala ecosystem. For mainly for purely functional programming, mm -hmm. and I guess we can also put that into the show notes. We definitely can. Okay, good. I think that concludes it for in terms of advanced topics for today. Um, thank you very very much for your time. Thank you um, for having me, and uh, thanks to our listeners for listening. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>